Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. You feel extremely violated, right? Somebody's in my house, somebody's stalking my girlfriend. You feel helpless. I couldn't do anything, I was stuck. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek, and I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And I'm going to give everybody a heads up. This is part one of a two-part story. So if you are a type of person that likes to binge a podcast and get it all done in one go, you need to wait, wait one more week, and you can do it all together. But if you're not, keep on listening. And we are going to see what day it is today, Mr. Billy Jensen. Today is April 14th, and it's Look Up at the Sky Day. Mm. I can get behind that. That's right. You know what? You know what? I I often forget to do it, but I think you should do it every day. Look up at the sky, try to make shapes out of the clouds, and just realize your place in the universe. This is something that I did in the beginning of COVID because there is nothing else to do. So I really took the time, smelt the roses, looked up into the sky, and it was pretty gorge, but constantly forget to do it. So good reminder. Mm. Good reminder. Wear sunglasses. Yes. Any other days? Yeah, to stick with the, uh, uh, you know, some some of the animals might have been left out. Uh, when we talked about the manatees, it's also National Dolphin Day today on April 14th. Mm, very- what a great day. What a fine day indeed. And isn't it something like everybody wear pink day or something like that? I believe I did see that as well. And it's National Bookmobile Day. Have you ever been to a bookmobile? This was a day last year and we hated it then too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> God forbid a library shows up at your house. No, now I'm starting to realize we're actually lapping and we're doubling up on on the years. So really try to do ones we haven't uh, discussed before. (laughs) Um, It's going to happen at some point. That would take seven years. I don't know. Maybe there's something similar to a bookmobile. It might have been like a book fair day or something like that. But we're not seven years into this yet. No, I think it's every like the third Wednesday of a month. It's the way Thanksgiving is, where it's probably always on a Wednesday or something. Mm, possibly. I don't know. We'll look into that. We've definitely but... had Bookmobile Day before. <laughs> no, you're right. Observed Wednesday of the second full week in April. Oh, mm-hmm. wow, Alexis. Right. Damn, uh-huh. what a, here we are. What a good memory. And All right. Sh- and, and you win a Bookmobile. You... <laughs> <laughs> it's going to come straight to your door. What a dream. All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. So today's case takes us back to December 14th of 1987. Songs Heaven is a Place on Earth by Belinda Carlisle and Faith by George Michael were topping the charts. And movies Empire of the Sun and Moonstruck were in theaters. 
And today's case begins in Redwood City, California, which is located in the Bay Area of Northern California, approximately 25 miles south of San Francisco and 27 miles north of San Jose. The San Mateo County Jail is located in Redwood City. And a little fun fact about the jail. In 1976, Patty Hearst was held there as it was the most secure facility in the Bay Area at the time. Ah, yes, Redwood City. It's just a 30-minute drive to San Francisco, so you can have a beautiful suburban life within close proximity to a metropolitan city. It sounds ideal, right? It was, especially for a young couple with budding careers. Here's our first degree, Bill. So we were living in Redwood City, which is kind of right next to Palo Alto. It's a suburb of San Francisco. Between San Francisco and San Jose, 1987, we felt that the the Bay Area was very safe, right? I mean, Palo Alto, extremely wealthy area. Atherton is right next door to Redwood City. You know, it's it's probably one of the wealthiest areas in in the country. And Redwood City was a little lower income at that time. Bill had actually moved to Redwood City with his girlfriend, Christine, and the couple settled into an apartment complex together. We're in an apartment complex on the kind of a side of a hill, but no, no redwoods, really. <laughs> it, it, and they were probably all chopped down in the late 1800s for, you know, building stuff. Just really this apartment complex was kind of in the middle of a bunch of housing. And across the street was a church that had a gym. And so it was a perfect location for us because we both swam competitively. And one attraction to this apartment was it had big picture windows, you know, gigantic windows that would, you know, Christine loved it, loved the light to come in. Bill and Christine were really excited to move in together. Christine was a pharmaceutical rep. That's how we met. We were both in pharmaceuticals. And then I, I think at the time I was selling video endoscopy equipment and Christine was in pharmaceuticals and we were living the loca vida, you know, just enjoying life. Part of both Bill and Christine's job required them to travel frequently for work. And in mid-December of 1987, Bill had to fly to L.A. for business. And on the evening of the 14th, Christine was getting home from a long day and called Bill to check in while he was on the road. Here's Christine. I had just gotten back from a business trip. I had gone to some pharmaceutical convention or business meeting or something, and I had gotten back, and it was dark, and... I got home and I ended up calling Bill and I was like, la, 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 how's it going? Christine and Bill were in that super cute phase, you know, the phase where if you're not together, you're on the phone constantly. Anytime one of us went out of town, we would spend, you know, how you spend hours talking on the phone and after work. Christine was home. She's stunningly beautiful, statuesque. Side note, Bill and Christine are married, and clearly they're still totally in love, which is really, really cute. All right, back to the story. She had come home, and we'd gotten on the phone, and we're, we'd probably, I don't know, we were probably talking for 45 minutes, an hour. As Bill and Christine chatted on the phone, the atmosphere in the apartment changed, and Christine noticed. And then I think I had to go out to dinner. She said, God, it's kind of cold. So it was in December. It was kind of chilly, right? And... So she said, I'm going to go turn the heat on. It's really cold. And I actually went to the thermometer and actually the heat was already turned up. So I was like, whoa, the heat's already on high. Why is it still cold? Maybe the heat was broken. Maybe it was taking longer than usual for the apartment to heat up. Or maybe something else was going on entirely. 
And then we talked a little bit more. And then at some point I had to go to a dinner meeting. So we hung up. Around 6 p.m. we probably hung up. I went to dinner. But for some reason, despite Christine adjusting the heat, the chill in the air persisted. She went to investigate again. The place wasn't warming up, right? And she noticed that the kitchen window drapes were billowing. It's a one-bedroom apartment, so I'm kind of walking around, and, and then I just happened to open the curtains of the, of the kitchen, and I look out, and, like, actually, the screen was gone, and the half of window was gone. So it was, like, open to air. She's like, well, that's kind of weird. Yes, extremely weird. And so then she, she's tall, right? She's 5'10", and she looks, she kind of leans down to look. I just kind of peek my head out the window, and there's this yellow, like, Naugahyde kitchen chair stacked up against the wall. And I'm like, wait, what? To be clear, Christine discovered the windows open when she had not left them open. When she looked outside, there was a chair below the window. And the assumption here is that someone was either looking inside and had opened the window or someone had actually climbed inside the apartment. This is obviously a nightmare for any woman home alone. And so she immediately did the right thing. She kind of freaked out and she called a friend of ours whose dad was chief of the Redwood City Fire Department. And he knew all the cops in the area, right? Christine calls their friend and she paints a picture of what she's observed in their apartment the window and the chair below it. And he responded with an incredible sense of urgency. He's like, get out, get out of the house right now. Stand in the middle of the street and, and wait for me. She's like, well, I'm in my underwear. And he's like, get out of the house. I'm standing in the middle of the street. I have my bathrobe on and I'm like waiting. And there aren't really any cars going by. Nobody, there's nothing, right? Christine stands in the road wearing her bathrobe alone in the dark as she waits for her friend to arrive. She waits, and she waits, and then finally headlights approach. And he pulls up uh, maybe five minutes later in his truck in the middle of the street, and they're standing out there. It's dark outside, and, you know, he's he's like, well, where are all the cops? So I'm like, I don't know. I'm waiting, right? He's like, he's like, oh, my God, I called them so long ago. Where are they? Yes. Where are all the cops? Bill and Christine's friend had called the cops before he'd come to help Christine. And clearly, they hadn't arrived yet. But then something strange and rather ominous occurred. All of a sudden, all these undercover guys came out of the bushes. They were everywhere. What the fuck? These plain closed cops come out of the bushes and the juniper and everything. And then we're trying to figure out what happened. And kind of from that point on, it's a little bit of a blur. You feel helpless, right? I'm in Los Angeles. And this is all taking place, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I was stuck. You feel extremely violated, right? Somebody's in my house. Somebody's stalking my girlfriend. Okay, so your mind is probably spinning a thousand miles a minute, wondering why a team of undercover cops were lying in wait in the bushes. Try putting yourself in the confusion of Christine's position right now. So many questions are probably swirling around in her mind. What were the cops doing there? Who were they looking for? Why were there so many of them? And most glaring of all, who the hell was the person who presumably had broken into the apartment when Christine was home alone? Well, to answer all of that, we've got to go back to the beginning. 
We are going back two years to November 14th of 1985. Songs We Built This City by Starship and Head Over Heels by Tears for Fears were topping the charts. And movies A Nightmare on Elm Street and Death Wish 3 were in theaters. And the setting for this portion of our story is Los Gatos, California, which is located in the San Francisco Bay Area. And geographically, it's the southwest corner of San Jose and just at the base of the foothills of the Santa Cruz Mountains. It's part of what is known as Silicon Valley. It was on this chilly November night when police received a call to report to a suburban home in a quiet Los Gatos neighborhood. There, a slight 62-year-old nurse with light-colored hair named Sarah was waiting for them, and she was completely distraught, and she relayed the horrifying ordeal she just experienced to them. She had been raped by a man who had inflicted a methodical plan of terror after entering her home. The man had slipped into Sarah's home through an unlocked window. He'd accosted Sarah, all while wearing a terrifying dark-colored ski mask. The man was brandishing what looked like a handgun, and he was able to incapacitate her and tie her up. After that, he wrapped her head and face with a towel. He then raped her on and off for more than an hour, alternating between sexually assaulting her and then leaving the room before coming back to taunt her again. He repeatedly told her he would kill her if she tried to look in the direction of his face, even though he was wearing a ski mask. He also threatened to strangle her with the sash of the robe she'd been wearing. Sarah later said during a media interview that, quote, the actual rape was the smallest part of it. What was worse was the sheer terror that was inflicted on me for an hour and 10 minutes. And upon hearing Sarah's story, the police were, of course, extremely disturbed. But they also weren't surprised. And this is why. It turns out that Sarah's rape was the fifth matching the similar M.O. to occur in this particular neighborhood in the Los Gatos suburbs in the last 15 months. The rapes had began in the late months of 1984. And when Sarah learned that she was the fifth victim of this guy in this super concentrated area, she was stunned. If that was the case, why didn't she know this was happening? Why weren't people in the community warned so they could exercise more caution than usual? The police hadn't gone public with the info about the rapes, later telling the Mercury News that, quote, they don't like to openly give out information about crimes like rape because, quote, that's just going to create panic and we're trying to prevent that, which is insane to me. Yeah. Baffling. Baffling. The first rape had occurred in late 1984. And when officers responded, they hoped it would be an isolated incident. But then on February 4th, 1985, there was another in Los Gatos. Then another. Then another then one in nearby Saratoga. By the time Sarah's rape occurred, they knew they were dealing with a serial offender. And now, finally, they were going public and began discussing the rapist with the press. The police confirmed that, yes, they believe these five rapes were the work of one suspect. In each of the five cases, the rapist slipped into a residence through an unlocked window or door and then raped, taunted, and robbed the victim before disappearing into the night. Even though he always wore a ski mask, Victims had still been able to provide a rough description. The rapist was described as an Anglo or Hispanic male in his 30s, about six feet tall, 175 to 185 pounds, and possibly has a Hispanic accent. And it seemed clear to all involved that he was not going to stop. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough. 
and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop, or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. By November of 1985, a rapist wearing a ski mask and brandishing a pistol had raped five women in the Bay Area neighborhood of Los Gatos, California. A 62-year-old nurse named Sarah had been this monster's most recent target. After this ordeal, Sarah was so traumatized that she couldn't return to her home for more than 10 days. However, in the days following the rapes, she went door to door to every house in her neighborhood and shared the details of her experience, determined to make sure her neighbors were aware of the suspect who was raping women in the area. She enrolled herself in therapy and then installed a security system and bought a guard dog that would sleep with her. Sarah's rape really, though, was a game changer for the investigation. The existence of the serial sexual predator had now gone public. There was no sweeping it under the rug or ignoring it. Police stepped up efforts to investigate the crimes. They added more patrol officers to the area and encouraged the public to call in any tips that could help in apprehending this suspect. 
And as far as evidence police could glean from each of the five scenes, it was pretty scant. Inside these homes, the suspect had either worn gloves or had been extremely careful not to leave any fingerprints. Or he cleaned off everything that he touched before he left. There was absolutely no trace of him. And after the attacks, the police would canvass the area and go door to door, and no one reported seeing any unfamiliar vehicles in the area. Nor did they see any cars speed away suspiciously late at night. The suspect also robbed each victim, taking jewelry and other small valuables from the home that he had noticed. The detectives, very creatively, dubbed this predator the ski mask rapist. Up until this point, it had been the San Jose Police Department handling these rape cases. They made the initial connections between the first attacks, but they believed that perhaps this monster was just getting started. So wisely, they thought it best to start meeting with neighboring police departments, because based on the frequency of attacks, they expected the rapist to expand his target area. And the San Jose police were wise to inform nearby law enforcement partners. And here's why. The suspect kept raping unsuspecting women, one after the next, hitting outside of Los Gatos and Saratoga. He hit Campbell, San Jose, Palo Alto, Mountain View, and Santa Clara. Several police departments in the areas the rapist was hitting compared notes, and they observed additional characteristics of the rapist's MO. The rapist always attacked a victim in their own home or on the premises of certain businesses, mainly churches or school campuses. And it seemed as though the suspect was stalking his victims beforehand. He would follow them home from work, stake out their houses, learn their schedules, and knew when they'd be home alone. Then he would strike. And after the rape, he would burgle the homes of his victims. And beyond the rapist's MO, law enforcement also observed a very clear victimology. Most of the victims the rapist targeted were professional women in their mid-30s with blonde hair. And obviously he attacked Sarah, who was 62, so there are some outliers and exceptions to the women that the rapist would fixate on. And despite the new efforts to catch him, the rapist kept attacking women. He was attacking them over and over and over again. And with each new attack, the horrible details just kept getting worse. He became emboldened and kept upping the ante. In one instance, he raped a mother as her 17-year-old daughter laid frozen next to her in fear. And when he was done, he raped the daughter too. These assaults lasted hours sometimes, and inflicted terror seemed to be his main focus. So I think it's really weird that Northern California has had these rash of just serial rapists that have... Obviously, this has a very Easter rapist MO, like A, the ski mask, and then the terror being the main focus, and then the stalking beforehand. It's just like, it's weird that there's so many of these guys in the Bay Area. Oh, this yeah. Is just a decade later. Yeah. I'm not extremely familiar with the timeline of Golden State Killer, but was there any overlap there? Could they no. have thought that any of that would have? It's totally different. Well, maybe they thought that he could have come back. But I think the description, the fact that he was described as possibly Hispanic and six feet doesn't go with him. But um, yeah, uh, D'Angelo was done with Sacramento in 79. And then um, these attacks started in 85. You're right, though. There were so many, like the early bird rapist was out there as well. It was just, and, you know, I did, I, I started doing the math myself. I had heard about this guy before, but I definitely went into Google Maps and tried to see how far Los Gatos was to Sacramento. Um, because, 
they were incredibly similar. It's just so crazy. Imagine being a woman living during those two decades and having two like prolific serial rapists just out and about. I can't imagine living in that type of a fear. It's crazy. And those are just the ones that we know about. We know that they didn't uh, look at what it took, you know, to nobody was saying any of this stuff. Nobody was talking about it. Even with East Area Rapists, nobody was talking about it until finally they said, we, we, we got to start talking about it. So bonkers, absolute freaking bonkers. So by this point, many Bay Area communities knew of the threat. Women were buying weapons. They were buying locks for their homes. They were taking self-defense classes. But all the preparations and caution in the world wouldn't make this rapist pump the brakes on his terror spree. The cases kept coming, and they continued to get worse. In one attack, the scumbag raped a pregnant woman while her four-year-old son laid on the floor nearby. By this point, the age range of the victims ranged from 17 to 77 years. No one was safe, and it's clear that this guy was escalating, and police feared that he may escalate to murder. In press conferences, the rapist was described as a meticulous planner who sometimes picked his targets weeks ahead of time. He was referred to as an intelligent and terrifying suspect. Experts on serial offenders aided in the investigation and theorized that the suspect could be obsessed with a childhood sexual fantasy that leads him to attack repeatedly. By 1987, dozens of women had been raped by the ski mask rapist, and only one victim was believed to have seen his face. The woman had caught sight of him while he fled without his mask after a failed rape attempt. She described him as a Hispanic man with a square face, well-defined jaw, and a medium brown olive complexion. And the reliability of this victim's description was bolstered by the fact that witnesses on a few occasions had seen a man matching this description lurking in neighborhoods where rapes later took place. But until this victim caught a glimpse of the rapist's face, it was impossible to know whether this lurker was actually connected to the rapes or just a red herring. But now with this description, they had something. Of course, there are thousands of men who would have matched the broad strokes of this description, but again, it was something. Sketches of the rapist were created with the help of these eyewitnesses and circulated in newspapers and broadcast on TV news programs. But the press coverage didn't force him into hiding. In February of 1987, a woman named Lisa was raped on her 31st birthday after the ski mask rapist blindsided her inside her home. He was wearing his token ski mask and holding a pistol. He raped and terrorized her for what seemed like hours. And he kept going, showing no signs that he would stop. Based on the research, it seems as though this rape spree perpetrated by the ski mask rapist was a pretty big deal in the Bay Area around 85 when the police finally started looping in the press. I asked Bill if he remembers hearing anything about it. If somebody was raped, again, it was the 80s. If it was even in the paper, it would be a small little, you know, paragraph, you know. It didn't even dawn on us that some guy would be raping, you know, dozens and dozens of women. It just, it wasn't even on the radar. And, you know, we were young and innocent and just going about our lives and really probably not as aware as most folks are today, right? Yeah, we, I don't think we ever locked our doors. By October of 1987, the ski mask rapist had struck at least 26 times that the police knew of, and he was about to make it 27. On October 4th, Carla, an elementary school teacher, was going into her classroom early in the morning to prepare for the coming week. And as she was getting organized at her desk, an intruder entered the room. She later said in an interview with the Mercury News, quote, He told me to lay down on the ground and he put something over my head. He pointed a gun at my head. 
and he said, you're going to do what I say. He cut the strap off of my purse and then he choked me. I was totally afraid. I thought he was going to take care of me forever. At this point, the rapist had been at it for three years. And it seemed as though the police were no closer to catching this guy. While they could identify his M.O. in a heartbeat, the rapist had continued to be meticulous in not leaving behind any physical evidence that could reveal his identity. And remember, this is 1987. DNA had just been used in a criminal case just a year before, all the way over in the U.K., And while the Bay Area would prove in the future to be really adept once DNA collection became a thing, they weren't testing for it back then. You know, the best things that they could have is the assailant's blood type and if he was a secretor or not. San Jose Detective Joe Reyes said in an interview with the Associated Press, quote, I feel like we know everything about him except his name and address. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack, said San Jose Lieutenant Skip Hazen, who was the guy that was in charge of the department's sexual assault unit. While no arrests had been made, the cops had pursued several potential suspects who they thought could be the rapist. And at least three had looked extremely promising to them. One suspect was tailed by a surveillance team for weeks. But ultimately, none of those guys ended up being their guy. But then another name popped up on their radar. And how police came to learn this name was a little bit complicated, so we'll simplify the sequence of events the best that we can. A few months prior, in August of 1987, a woman at a rape crisis center had confided in a volunteer counselor there about a burglary attempt that she experienced in nearby Foster City, California. The man aborted the attempt in the middle of the robbery and he fled, but was ultimately apprehended by police. This burglar was 26-year-old George Anthony Sanchez, and when the police arrested him, he had a dark blue ski mask with red trim, he had dark gloves, and a pellet gun in his possession. And the victim in the case saw Sanchez's face in court when he was prosecuted, and it looked a lot like the sketch that was circulating around in the press. George Sanchez was ultimately sentenced to six months of weekends in jail for the burglary attempt. And it was in May of 1987 that this woman called in a tip with the San Jose PD, providing George Sanchez's name along with other pertinent information. This tip was filed as lead number 120 by Lieutenant Joe Reyes at the San Jose Police who at the time was the only detective working full-time on the case because of a manpower shortage. It's kind of crazy to me that there are over 20 rapes and they've only got one detective on it. It's insane. I mean, and the... It's all very strange. The fact that they're not, they weren't telling anybody about it, being like, you know, it's just going to create, like, it's going to ruffle make up some feathers. Yeah. Yeah. And then they don't put anybody on the case. It's like, you really don't want to solve this shit, do you? No, when you think about it too, this is Silicon Valley in the early 80s. This is as it's starting to explode. This is going to be one of the, the, the richest areas with the most money coming out of it in the next couple decades. And they're just trying to keep the peace as much as they can, trying to keep things out, you know, which is horrible. Yeah. But that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. Being like, it's so great. Everybody move here. Yeah. Everybody move here. It's good. It's crazy. And it's like, think about it. If this was tip number 120 and there's one detective on it, think about how long it's going to take him to get there. Oh, my gosh. But. Right. Because this is ultimately what happened. The tip about George Sanchez, it was added to a larger list of more than 2000 tips. So for whatever reason, probably the reason we just mentioned about there being only one detective on the case, this particular tip didn't actually stand out as being of paramount importance. There were 2000 others after all. It wasn't actually until a second detective was assigned to the case full time in August of 87. And it's at this point that they could properly look into George Sanchez. 
And here's what they learned. So George Sanchez is 26-year-old. He was a city sewer worker, and he was married father of two. His wife, Clara, worked as a librarian. Okay, so on paper, he doesn't necessarily fit the bill. Seems pretty ordinary. But now that the police were aware of the items that were found in his possession when he was arrested for burglary, they figured he was certainly worth looking into a bit further. As the preliminary investigation into George Sanchez began, the number of rapes perpetrated by the Bay Area ski mask rapist continued to climb. Between October and mid-November of 1987, four more attacks were reported, one of them involving a 16-year-old girl who was raped in the family room of the Cupertino house she shared with her parents. Clearly, the rapist was showing no signs of slowing down. San Jose police decided to start conducting full-time surveillance on George Sanchez. And suspiciously, they found that he frequently prowled residential neighborhoods and business areas. But was he prowling for his own job as a city sewer worker? Or was it for an after-hours activity, you know, like raping and terrorizing? The police continued to trail Sanchez, but they hadn't caught him doing anything particularly damning yet. They were beginning to wonder whether or not their pursuit of Sanchez was just another rabbit hole like the three suspects who looked really good for this who had come before him. And it was now November of 1987. The Thanksgiving holiday was fast approaching. And during the holidays, certain police units tend to be short-staffed since so many people want time off during Thanksgiving. And it's not clear who made this call, but the surveillance detail was pulled off of George Sanchez over this Thanksgiving weekend. And this would prove to be an extremely costly mistake. Right. Because by the time Thanksgiving weekend was over, there would be more pain and suffering. And the ski mask rapist will have upped the ante once again. All right. Well, a huge thank you to Bill and Christine for being our first degrees this week. They will be with us next week for the conclusion of our two-part series on the Bay Area Ski Mask Rapist. And uh, we are not doing Killing Time this week because we are preparing to make Killing Time its very own episode in a few weeks. So we are hard preparing for that. And it's not going to be like the Killing Times we've been doing. This is structured. This is polished. (laughs) This is a well-formed idea and well-formed conversations and you guys are going to yes oh it's gonna be so fun it's gonna be longer it's gonna be star-studded it's gonna have a mix of (laughs) of crime and popular culture and when billy says star-studded he means himself he'll be there yeah billy jensen will be there it's gonna be amazing no it's really great we've been there'll be plenty of meanness against me too i'm sure Oh, I mean, there's, it's going to be a 45 minute roast. There's Billy literally Jensen a whole segment part. that 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 has written down seven minutes. Make fun of Billy, which I don't know how you guys are going to do that. But I have, a, you know, I mean, we need seven minutes minimum. It's going to be yeah. it. We'll sprinkle I have, it. I have some ideas for that. <laughs> <laughs> so don't don't be mad at us for not having killing time because we're spending all of our hard yes. earned time preparing for this epic second episode. You're going to dig it. You're going to dig it. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not, but not that, that close. Happy Bookmobile Day again. That's right. <laughs> Coming around again. Damn it. Yell out for it. It'll stop for you. 
Shout out to Jared Monaco for producing original music for The First Degree, to our producing team, Caitlin Cleveland, Taylor Rogers, and Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for today's episode include The Associated Press, The LA Times, The Mercury News, UPI, The San Francisco Chronicle, and as always, our first degree guests, in this case, are always our largest source. <laughs>